Welcome to The Hoop Commitment. I'm your host, Mike Nielsen. Join me every week to get inside the greatest minds in basketball nutrition, training, and leadership to elevate your game and improve the way you eat, train, and lead. Welcome to Episode 8. I've got a special treat for everyone today. Joel Jamison from 8weeksout.com is joining us to talk about basketball conditioning. I've read all his books and recently completed his online course to become a certified conditioning coach. This guy is a worldwide expert in the field, training not only professional athletes, but also educating strength coaches like me on how to maximize performance through energy system development. He's done an incredible job of digging into the science to create easy-to-use strategies for building better athletes. Here's Joel Jamison. Welcome, Joel. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You know, it was probably 10 years ago maybe now that I read The Ultimate Guide to MMA Conditioning and just fell in love with it. And So ever since, I've been studying your stuff. And so to have you on the show today is a huge honor. So welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Time time flies. I can't believe it's been... Literally, uh, you know, 10 plus years since I wrote that book. Well, yeah, what I loved about it was uh, how it just dug deep into the science, but it was so usable. And I almost didn't buy the book because I'm not an MMA conditioning coach. Um, but someone really it came highly referred to me. And so I, I thought I'd check it out. And as I read it, it, it was bigger than just MMA. It was really the foundation of, of exercise and conditioning for all sports. And so thank you so much for doing that. And then, of course, your other books and and now I'm a BioForce certified conditioning coach. So I've dug into a lot of your stuff. And in my opinion, it's really the best around. So to have you on the show today talking about basketball strength conditioning is a huge honor. Yeah, well, like I said, I'm glad to be on, uh, on, on the show. And it's, you know, it's funny that you mentioned the, the book. Yeah, obviously, it was, was titled around MMA and, and conditioning for, for combat athletes. But I have had a ton of coaches like yourself from other sports who have kind of come to the same conclusion that you have that it, you know, the, the book provides more of a foundation for just conditioning as a whole and how it applies to a variety of sports. And that really wasn't my intention when I wrote it, but I think most, more than anything else, it just, it speaks to the fact that there really is not that much out there. That's both scientifically driven and practical at the same time. A lot of stuff on energy systems and conditioning is extremely science based and just feels like you're reading a research article and there's nothing really practical out of it, or there's a lot of practical stuff that has no real science or research behind it. So I tried to do my best to bridge the gap there, and it's uh, you know the fact that I think the book still still sells today and has influenced a lot of coaches like yourself is is uh, you know it's awesome feedback for me. Well, tell the audience a little bit of your background and how you became known as the conditioning expert. Yeah, you know it's it's a funny twist of fate. I was actually a strength guy, like a lot of people in the field. I got into it through football. Actually, at uh, University of Washington, there's a coach there named Bill Gillespie. Uh, one of the strongest human beings on the planet, and I followed him over to Seahawks for a little while. And, uh, you know, really I was kind of going down that same same path of really being a strength guy that thought conditioning was just running some gassers into practice. Uh, and then I actually ended up opening up a gym of my own in 2003 called Enzo Athletics, you know, which again was really meant to be focused more on the football side of things. And just uh, as fate would have it, I opened up next to an MMA gym called the AMC Pancration, which turned out to be one of the, the most successful and now the longest running MMA gyms in the world. And not long after I'd opened, I had a, a fighter walk over and asked if I'd train him for a K1 fight in, in Japan. And I said, yeah, sure, no problem. Cause I honestly, I need clients at the time I just opened the gym. 
and then I had to sit there and, and look up what the hell K1 was because I didn't really even know the sport. So, you know, being a, being a typical strength guy at the time, I put him through a bunch of strength tests and, and quickly found how weak he was. And so, you know, I went to work building this brilliant strength program that I thought was going to transform his performance. And, you know, that was kind of the my initial reaction and, and thought that what I needed to do was, was the way to go. So really it wasn't until I started actually training MMA, which didn't take long because I realized I didn't really understand the sport very well. And so I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to train these guys, I better see what it's like. And so I started rolling with them and, and, you know, I was quite a bit stronger than most of the fighters at the time. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll have some advantage in the strength side of things, but literally in 20 or 30 seconds, I was just completely out of gas and they were, you know, rolling me up like a pretzel and, you know, treating me like I was a rag doll. So it was just a big eye opener that conditioning was not what I thought it was and strength didn't apply if you were too tired to ever use your strength. So I had to go in a completely different direction and I had to really dive deep into conditioning to understand it because, you know, these guys were counting on me to do that. So I dug into science. I dug into talking to different experts. I went through a lot of trial and error uh, and just over time just immersed myself in it, you know, both training, you know, combat sport myself and then just studying and researching and, and trying all these different things to understand it because, uh, you know, again, I, I didn't have a background. I don't have an exercise physiology background. I didn't study conditioning. I was, I was like I said, much more on the strength side. So it was really just a number of years of, of doing that. And over time, I realized that there was a lot of coaches who were like me. They had read a lot about strength. You know, they lived in the weight room. Uh, writing strength programs was, was second nature and fairly straightforward. But then they get into the energy systems and it was just kind of a, a, you know, a big black box they didn't really understand. And so that's where I created a website and started to write and help people, you know, just put the pieces together and, and save them the years of effort it had taken me to, to kind of get through all that and put it together in a meaningful way. So, uh, you know, I'd like to say it was part of some grand scheme to become a conditioning expert out there. But that was definitely not my initial intent. It was more just, uh, you know, fate than anything else I guess, that I happened to open up and and be next to an MMA gym like that and be forced to, to figure out how to get these guys in shape and ready to fight. Because the, the biggest thing is, you know, team sports, if you win or lose, there's, there's all kinds of variables that can come into play in a, in a fight. You know, if a guy goes out there and he gasses out and it's, it's pretty obvious and you're the strength conditioning coach, you know, I felt like there was a lot of responsibility on me and I felt obligated to learn as much as I could. So that didn't happen. And so I wasn't responsible for them, you know, gassing out and, and losing a fight. So yeah, you know, that's kind of the, the, the long story of how I ended up being known for conditioning and, and uh, like I said, I'm, I'm thankful that it did happen that way because it's opened up a lot of doors and opportunities just to, to coach a different side of things than most people do. And well, today uh, we're going to be specifically talking about basketball conditioning. This is a basketball podcast, obviously. And so when I say basketball specific conditioning, what does that mean to you? You know, I, I think we have to define what is conditioning as a whole in general. So, you know, people define it different ways. I, I like to say it's the, the physical and mental preparation, you know, in order to, to meet the demands of whatever it is your environment is and, and reach whatever goals you have within that context. So, you know, conditioning to me, it's, it's a very broad thing. It's, it's all the pieces of strength, power, energy systems, movement, capacity, mental, it's all those things put together in a very specific way that allows you to complete an objective in this case, you know, basketball. So, you know, when I think about any conditioning for any sport, I just think about understanding the, the different pieces of the sport. In other words, what makes the athlete successful, what makes the athletes unsuccessful, what are the most important components to develop both physically and mentally, and which are the components that are least important. So if we look at basketball, obviously they have to be explosive. 
uh, but they also have to be explosive for you know the entirety of the game. Otherwise, uh, you know they're they're going to lose their speed and they're going to slow down. And they're going to fatigue. They also have to have you know a tremendous amount of skill, but they have to be able to maintain that high skill level across all four quarters. Uh, they also have to deal with the stress of travel, the stress of games. They have to deal with all these uh, different elements that are just inherently part of team sport. So when you look at any again any sport. I try to just kind of look at the big picture of, of what are the demands, what are the environment, what is the competition, what do all these things look like? And, you know, basketball is certainly a unique sport in that you have to have a very high combination of both explosive power and endurance, which is a difficult combination to achieve. And I think personally, basketball players are some of the best athletes in the world in that sense and, and just in the sense that they are incredibly explosive, you know, but they are playing a continuous game and they're playing four long quarters, um, you know, without slowing down or slowing down minimum at least. So I haven't personally trained a ton of basketball players, but I have a tremendous amount of respect for uh, just the demands of sport and the training that goes into it. Well, and that's what I was really pleasantly surprised about. The conditioning course was, I think going in, I was expecting to learn about energy systems and how they apply to the game of basketball. But then we had all these other components like breathing, uh, soft tissue work, the mental coaching part. And that was just nice to see the whole picture as a basketball uh, strength conditioning coach. There's more than just running and lifting weights. There's so much more to it. So I thought that was something that really set us, set you apart as a, you know, the bioforce conditioning course. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, that's, that's kind of the biggest thing that you, you realize is that, uh, you know, a lot of people will look at, you know, lifting weights and they'll measure strength or they'll look at your ability to, you know, run a hundred meter dash or to run intervals or whatever. And those, those to me are measures of fitness. You know, we can, we can measure these different markers of different categories of fitness, but really what I think conditioning is, is the ability to put all those pieces together and actually turn them into a performance on the court. So that's where environment and soft tissue management and recovery and nutrition and mental training, that's where all of those things play such a big role because there's, there's plenty of guys that we call weight room athletes, right? They're guys that have the physical fitness ability, but they can't translate that into actual performance on the court. And to me, again, conditioning is being able to use your fitness in the actual skill or the event or whatever it is you're competing in. So that's where we have to look beyond just one piece of the puzzle, beyond just energy systems or beyond just strength. We have to look at all these pieces and how they come together. Well, can you give uh, the listeners just a, a brief overview of the energy systems and then maybe what that would look like for a fitness test for a basketball player? Sure. I mean, just to give people the simplest overview, you know, most people are aware we have the aerobic side of the equation, which just means we're creating energy through oxidative or you know, oxygen driven processes. And then we have the anaerobic side, which are creating energy without oxygen. Now, the, the aerobic system is really what we use for the vast majority of our life and it produces you know a, a fairly high level of power but it has its limits because it's breaking down energy and going through lots of different pathways it takes time uh, the anaerobic system just has much fewer pieces um, but because it runs faster it's able to produce much more force and power uh, and it runs on different substrates it runs more on creatine phosphate and, and breaking down sugar so uh, and and the aerobic system mostly works on fat and, and also some sugars but each of those systems really just plays a different role in life and in performance. And the aerobic system, again, it's really our dominant energy system. It never shuts off. It's what's creating energy 24/7 throughout your entire life. And it, it, you know, it, the moment that stops is is really when you're when you're dead. That's about it. The anaerobic side, on the other hand, is is really what we would call our our fight or flight, you know, energy system. Where if if we need explosive bursts of energy, uh, maybe not for survival, but just for performance, the anaerobic side kicks in. 
and produces force and power above what the aerobic side can kick in. Now, inherently, if we look at these two, they are conflicting in, in one sense. Uh, the aerobic side, like I said, it's, it's slower. It can't produce quite as much force and power, but it can produce energy for endless amounts of time. The anaerobic system, again, it's much faster. It's much, uh, much more capable of high levels of power output, but it's much, much more limited in terms of how long it can produce energy for. So, you know, the anaerobic system is just cranking up energy to maximal production, and that causes a huge internal change in the body. And if that were to continue indefinitely, you would cause damage, and the body's designed to prevent that. So we can really only produce those anaerobic bouts for a short, short period of time. I mean, 30 seconds, about 60 seconds is the maximum you can sustain anything predominantly through anaerobic process. Anything beyond about a minute is going to be predominantly aerobic. So really what most performances come down to is finding the right balance between those two because you, you can't develop both of them maximally. And we can see that just uh, you know, in, in performance, we can see that you know, Usain Bolt's not going to go out and run a marathon. And no matter how much he trained for a marathon, he would never be able to perform a marathon at the same level as a world-class marathon runner. By the same token, a world-class marathon runner is never going to be able to sprint like Usain Bolt. There's, there's a trade-off fundamentally between how much force and power you produce and how long you produce it for. So the more you train your body to produce lots of energy anaerobically, the less ultimately we develop the, the aerobic side. So we have to look basically at the trade-off between the two, and that's where every sport kind of has its own unique demands based on the work-to-rest ratio and the entirety of the game and the practices and all these sorts of things. So that's why, again, sports that are on one end of the equation, you know, weightlifting is obviously a very anaerobic dominant sport. You know, running marathons is a very aerobic dominant sport. But a lot of the team sports, it's finding the right combination in between and making sure that, you know, again, we don't go too far one direction to where a guy's extremely explosive, you know, but he can't last for all four quarters. Or maybe a guy can last for all four quarters, but he's not very explosive. It's it's finding the right balance that's incredibly important for sports and for each individual player, really, because everybody has their own natural talents, natural talents and, and strengths and weaknesses as well. Um, but really, it just comes down to, again, finding that balance between those two energy systems because we just have to realize you can't train them both to the highest level. It's not possible. So here's a tough question for you, which is I have a lot of friends that are strength coaches and a lot of friends that are, are basketball coaches as well. Do we really need to test a player's fitness for the game of basketball? We know that, you know, in the high school game, they're playing eight minute quarters. There's timeouts, uh, free throws, you know, dead balls. You have all these breaks. Um, and if, if we do need to test people's fitness, uh, is there a conditioning test that you like for basketball? I mean, I think you always need to have some idea of what the model of fitness looks like, right? So what I mean by that is you will find that certain parameters are common amongst the players who perform really well and less common amongst the ones who don't perform really, really well. So, you know, for a sport like basketball where it's inherently, you know, like you said, there's there's lots of rest periods, but they're obviously also periods of play that are continuous and, and can be fatiguing. I found that you can put together what I would just call like a fitness profile, and we can look at things like resting heart rate. Uh, we can look at heart rate variability. Uh, we can look at like a Cooper's test type thing. We can we can look at these different markers, and you'll find that uh, you know if guys are below certain levels there, then chance of their fitness is probably not what it needs to be, and they are more likely to you know to fatigue over time. Once you cross a threshold of uh, you know like a minimum fitness level, then going higher and higher and higher doesn't necessarily make you more and more fit, or at least doesn't make your performance that much better so i think you want to have you know just some baseline numbers on guys and identify you know again what are the numbers that you're looking for in elite performers and i would say you know most team sport athletes 
I can tell you their resting heart rates are usually in the low 50s for the guys that are performing well. Uh, HRV varies depending on the system that you're using, but the systems I've developed, usually you see their HRV in the 80s. Um, and those are usually some good kind of just basic you know, aerobic fitness markers I've seen translate into performance across a lot of team sports and, and basketball would be among those. Uh, but I'd also say, generally speaking, you know, since basketball players play basketball all the time, they, they do get a lot of sports-specific conditioning as well. It's one of those sports where, you know, they do play it frequently. It's not like football where, you know, guys will take six months off and, and not play anything. So uh, a lot of guys maintain a reasonable level of fitness in the basketball community, that, at least that I've seen, because they do play it quite a bit. So, and, and also, you know, you can see pretty obviously on the court if a guy's tired, it's very obvious to, to sit there and watch. So it's easier to spot guys that maybe do have more fitness problem than, than in other sports where it's maybe less apparent. But, uh, you know, again, I, I like to say you know, in every sport, we all want to have an idea of what drives performance in that sport. And that's where just having a baseline measure of these different fitness markers can help us figure those things out. You know, one uh, tool that I've used is the intermittent recovery test. It's uh, the, the Spark version. And what I like about it is it's standardized. And over the last 10, 15 years, I've done it enough to know, hey, if my athletes reach this certain level, they're prepared for the demands of practice. And I like to be able to send them off from their off season, be able to hand them over to the coach. And the coach is always going to ask, are they in shape? And instead of saying, I think so, you know, like you mentioned, there's other markers. I like to be able to say, hey, these athletes made it to this level. That means they're ready for the demands of practice. And we know that practice uh, can be a lot more difficult in terms of, uh, you know, time on the court. Sometimes they're two or three hour practices. You know, you get a lot of work in versus a game, which has its own demands. But I found that intermittent recovery test, uh, the yo-yo one has been uh, really helpful. I don't know if you have a lot of experience with that or not. Yeah, I've used it a bit. I think it's it's definitely a good test for intermittent sports like, uh, you know, basketball, obviously. Um, but like you said, a, a lot of it just comes down to identifying which the athletes, you know, are looking like they're physically and mentally prepared and which ones aren't. And there's definitely a million different tests that you can do, but it's a matter of finding out which tests correlate the best performance and which tests you feel the most informative. So, uh, you know, I, I agree a lot of, a lot of intermittent type sports like basketball, the yo-yo type test where it's mimicking and simulating that to some extent, you know, it's going to be one of the more important tests because it will translate more to performance better than, you know, maybe a continuous test would. So, um, yeah, I think, I think a lot of it could just come down to, again, what, are, what, what coaches want to use depends on, you know, what equipment they have available, how much time they have, what tests they, you know, are familiar with and know how to, how to run properly, all those sorts of things. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, I do think testing plays a role and it's an important part of the process of just, again, just tracking improvement and, and identifying guys that need work in certain areas. Well, I read your uh, ultimate guide to HRV a few years ago. And what the, there was a line in there that I loved, and you said, the role of a strength coach is to monitor stress. And I love that that uh, idea because, you know, if I stress an athlete too much over time, they're going to start seeing overuse and sickness and injury. But if I don't stress them you know, over the course of four years, we see them leave a lot of gains on the table. And so what I was kind of hearing you say was, we have to be able to monitor more than just one test. We have to be able to monitor the system. And, and a lot of times with my athletes, we see them f tired or maybe look fatigued. And it's not because they're not in good fitness shape. It's might be because they, they might be doing too much with the demands of school, you know, lack of sleep, um, poor nutrition. So, you know, I think that piece is, is part of the equation when we come to conditioning, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a hugely important part of the equation. And that's kind of the... The biggest thing I try to get people to understand is just the connection between 
all these different areas, you know, sleep, nutrition, mental stress, you know, all of these things have a huge impact on people's fatigue and their performance and, and ultimately their fitness because once again, they're all connected to energy and the, the, the body can't produce an unending amount of energy to meet all these demands. So if somebody's, you know, not sleeping well or, or they're mentally stressed from school or they're not eating right, you know, all of those will have a big impact on their ability to train and recover. And so, uh, you know, that's something we saw, you know, pretty early on with, with looking at HRV data is seeing athletes when they're in finals week would, you know, they would be absolutely trashed even if their training was relatively moderate because they're spending so much time studying, which is a mentally demanding task and they, they weren't getting as much sleep, which is taken away from it. So, uh, yeah, I think as a, a strength and conditioning coach, the biggest thing that we can do is is to look at ourselves as more than just, you know, people that write, write programs to weight room or even just write, uh, you know, conditioning programs. We need to look at the bigger picture of all these stressors and figure out how do we help them manage those things, particularly, you know, in season where they can be the defining factor. I mean, the teams that can handle stress over the course of a season, the travel, the pressure of games, the you know, the varying sleep schedules in school and the the team that can manage those things better is the team that's going to be performing better at the end of the season than they were at the beginning. And the teams that can't manage those things are going to be the ones that are falling apart and missing playoffs when they, you know, started out hot. So I think uh, the role of strength coaches, you know, I, I don't know we're going to redefine the name, but it's it's about a lot more than strength. It's about a lot more than, you know, just conditioning. It's, it's about this entirety of, of lifestyle management more than anything else. Well, now here's a question that I really want to hear from you because you are the conditioning expert. And it's the idea that do our high school basketball players or even our college players for that matter, do they need to do targeted fitness if they're getting enough one-on-one, three-on-three, five-on-five games? You know, can you really play your way into shape? You mentioned that, you know, more power, more speed, more quickness is always better. But for basketball, more conditioning or more fitness is not always better. So what would you say to the coach that says, hey, my players, they get enough one-on-one. They're getting that, you know, um, quick burst of always being engaged in every play. You know, the three-on-three has different energy demands. The five-on-five does. Can you just play your way into shape? Well, I mean, it's like asking, can you play your way into explosiveness? I mean, you're kind of going down this rabbit hole when you when you ask that question of just do I need any, any non-specific training? Because we got to always remember, obviously, basketball, playing basketball is the most specific thing you can do to playing basketball. So if you try to make this argument that, well, they play a lot of basketball, therefore they don't need any, you know, non-specific basketball conditioning, then you might as well say, well, they don't need any ba- non-specific basketball strength either, right? That's not something most people would say. No one would say, well, my guys play basketball, so they don't need to lift weights at all. At least they, most people wouldn't say that. So I think we just need to realize there's there's a time and there's a role for weightlifting. There's a time and there's a role for less specific conditioning. And I would say a lot of it could just be preventing overuse injuries from doing the same thing over and over again. A lot of it could be developing different movement patterns they might not see in the court and being able to develop a wider range of skill sets and, and conditioning uh, movements. So, uh, you know, look, I would just say that in general, we we look at training as more than just playing the sport. I mean, I could play the sport 24 hours a day and I'd probably be in decent shape for playing a sport, but I'd also have massive overuse injuries because all I did was play the sport. I never developed anything else. So I think there's always a role for, you know, non-specific or less specific, I guess, conditioning, less specific strength. It's, but, you know, it also depends on the time of year. So the way I always look at it is, you know, when you're, you know, in a, in a more of an off-season or a less competitive phase, that's the time where we want to develop these other abilities and we want to develop strength. We want to develop power. We want to work on you know, maybe other types of conditioning movements and, and the modalities. 
And as we get closer and closer to the season, that's where everything becomes more and more specific. But if all you do is play basketball and that's the only train you do, you know, again, I think a lot of times you're setting yourself up for maybe longer term problems in terms of, uh, you know, chronic overuse injuries and just mental fatigue and burnout and all those sorts of things. So I don't, I don't think there's too many sports where we should say the only training anyone ever needs to do is play the sport. We always think and, and realize there's benefits to doing training outside the sport. So that includes doing conditioning outside the sport, just as includes doing strength training outside the sport. I like that answer. You know, I, I got one more that's kind of along those same lines, which is when I was in high school, I had the, the best high school coaches and they got to spend a preseason uh, down at UCLA the year they won the national championship. And he came back and he said, you know, they structure their practice so they don't have to do a whole lot of extra conditioning. They, they structure their drills and their rest periods to where it's a great workout. But they said they do one thing every day. They do a sideline 17 under a minute, which is you go sideline to sideline, you know, over is one, back is two. So you have to get 17 in a minute. And so we just did that every day of practice. You know, we'd have our whole practice and it might be at the, you know, towards the middle or maybe in the end, we'd have to run the sideline 17. And I don't know if it was, um, you know, a physical or physiological benefit that I got or a mental benefit, but there was that piece of just feeling strong and knowing that I could sprint for one minute and it doesn't really line up with the energy demands of basketball. You're never running, you know, using that, maybe that glycolytic energy system for in that way. What would you say to someone that likes running those sideline 17s? Is there a benefit to it? Uh, there, there could be in the sense that anytime you drive the heart rate into to higher levels like that, which you're going to do after, you know, an, an exercise like that, there, there are specific things that happen, I would say, in the cardiovascular system and probably potentially mentally as well, that just get you used to these higher level exertions and train the body to be able to produce, you know, oxygen at these higher levels of, uh, you know, good intensity. So not everything is quite as straightforward as saying, well, you never do this type of thing in basketball, so that means you should never do it. I mean, uh, there, there are reasons that we can train these different energy components separately that maybe not, maybe aren't used by themselves, but maybe be are used in an, in an integrated fashion in basketball. So uh, there there are again benefits to driving heart rate to maximum because it causes specific changes. Uh, one thing they think is that it might cause specific changes in the brain because only at the higher intensities uh, does the brain become essentially uh, better at having to manage oxygen deprivation at very high intensities because that's the last thing that the body will will ever pull out energy away from. So there there very well may be you know, tangible physiological benefits to going to higher intensities for longer durations than you may ever do in the sport itself. You know, in other words, it's just less sport specific training. It, it may still certainly have a, a carryover benefit there. It's, I, I think we just have to understand there's, there's always this spectrum. People want to say everything is specific or it's, it's non-specific, but really there's, there's shades of gray. There's, there's a spectrum of less specific to more specific. Obviously in basketball, the most specific thing is competing it's playing a basketball game competition a less specific thing would be would be practicing maybe a less specific thing would just be shooting free throws and then maybe a less specific thing would be uh sprints up another court and then maybe a less specific thing would be running on a treadmill right we can we can always look at the demands of the game and and simulate aspects of it that maybe don't look like basketball but maybe still have carryover into basketball so i guess the, the long answer is yes there very well may be benefits to doing things that don't look exactly like a basketball uh, sprint might or a game might, but they still can have tangible benefits and carryovers into the game. And there certainly could be a case if you know if if you 
use that method and the athletes seemed like they benefited from it and there was a clear result, then at the end of the day, you know, absolutely, it must have been doing something, right? I love that. I got I got two more questions for you. And this one here is when I've heard you speak on before, but it kind of goes to that general principle, which is, you know, the craze a few years ago was CrossFit. And I'm a gym owner here in Spokane. We have a physical therapy and sports performance clinic. And uh, boy, we said we saw a lot of athletes coming through the doors on the physical therapy side for a while until they kind of figured out how to maybe adjust the CrossFit workouts that fit to them. Or we had a lot of people not coming through the doors because they said, hey, I'm going to get them in better shape through doing CrossFit. How does CrossFit fit in with something like uh, the sport of basketball? Well, look, I, th- I think CrossFit started out, um, you know, as just this idea that you could you could develop all these different types of fitness by kind of doing things in a random fashion, uh, which maybe is not the right answer. Uh, and then I would say CrossFit evolved into like nothing but like high intensity every day for 30 minutes or whatever it was and just run yourself in the ground. And then now I would say CrossFit's kind of evolved to where you have some gyms, you know, using the basic movements of CrossFit, but doing trying to do it in a more intelligent manner and then you have some crossfit gyms who are again just kind of sticking with this let's do everything at random all the time and see what happens so it, it, it kind of depends on who's running a crossfit gym that you're doing because again I've, I've walked into some crossfit gyms and there was actually some intelligent training going on there that you know wasn't the end of the world bad it was it was decent and it could have some benefits but then i've walked in other crossfit gyms where they're just running them into the ground with terrible technique and everyone's gonna get injured and fall apart so Ultimately, I think, look, whatever you call it, it comes down to coaching. It comes down to understanding the individual. And that's one thing CrossFit hasn't been good at is prescribing things for the individual. And it's more than just scale. It's it's the exercise selection. It's the movement development. It's the coaching. It's all these sorts of things. So I would say, you know, in general, any gym you're going to want to go to, you're going to want to see that the coaching is personalized to the people that are there. And a basketball player should not be doing the same things as a football player or should same thing as a football or a combat athlete. I mean, there might be some elements that are similar. Everyone's going to warm up. Everyone's going to cool down. Uh, you know, everyone's going to do some of the basic elements of, of lifting. But, you know, beyond that, there has to be a personalization. And I think that's the biggest critique I would say CrossFit is is lacking is they, they, the principle as a whole was that everyone should be doing the same thing in different intensities. That's not really accurate. Everyone should be doing things that are specific to their own body, specific to their own demands. And the other thing I would say is CrossFit's emphasis on technique under fatigue was uh, has always been severely lacking, which is why you get a lot of these injuries, is you try to make people tired, but you let their technique go completely down the drain as they fatigue, and they develop very bad movement patterns. They develop these overuse injuries because muscles are being recruited that shouldn't be, and stresses are places that are not designed to be, and all these sorts of things. So that's a long-winded answer, but I, I guess I would just say that, you know, I, I wouldn't... CrossFit itself, you know, has kind of evolved into different things to different people in different gyms, so I don't know, I could just say there's a you know, CrossFit's always good or CrossFit's always bad. I would say it's the coaching, it's the principles, it's the foundational things that drive whether or not the program's successful or not. So I'm always looking for, you know, a coach that's that's looking at personalization, a coach that's looking at the specific demands that the events that people are trained for, you know, a coach that's looking for the big picture of lifestyle and all these sorts of things. And I've seen a few CrossFit gyms here and there do a good job of that. And what I'd say, they're probably not actually doing CrossFit. They're doing something, they're, they're just training intelligently, whatever you want to call that. So, you know, by and large, I'm, I'm just uh, always looking for those sorts of elements in any gym or any sort of training to, to, to you know, separate the, the good or the better training from the, the worst training. 
Well, and we have a great example of that here in Spokane. We actually have a, one of my friends owns a CrossFit gym here, and he's a phenomenal trainer and does a great job of being able to tailor to the individual. So, yeah, it's a little bit uh, a loaded question. It's like saying, is physical therapy good or bad? Well, yeah. it probably depends on who your physical therapist is. Uh, last question before you, before I uh, let you take off. Uh, are there any big mistakes that uh, coaches, specifically basketball coaches, but coaches are making in general, um, that little tip that you could send them away with that might help them out? Um, you know, again, I, I think a lot of the, if, if we're, if we're going to stick with the conditioning team here, I think a lot of the things is, uh, as you're training a basketball player or, or any other sport for that matter, but, you know, particularly basketball, the, the goal is never really to, to make somebody tired just for the sake of making them tired. It's to develop the physical capacity so they don't get tired, right. When they're actually playing. But along those lines, we also want to always reinforce and emphasize their skill and technique when they're tired. So, I think a lot of these basketball, uh, you know, drills, or you're just trying to make somebody tired because you think that's what's going to develop the energy systems. That's fine, but I would say never let technique get sacrificed. And technique could be shooting on the court and actually practicing their drills when they're tired. Technique could just mean paying attention to the running form as they start to fatigue, uh, or anything like that. So I think we have to realize that technique at the end of the day is always what wins games. I mean, the skill of the game is what drives success or failure of the game. It's Fitness is your ability to maintain those skills without them deteriorating. So I just think if you're going to run basketball, you know, conditioning drills and you're going to run anything that's fatiguing, we can't let their technique fall apart in the process. So that means just as people fatigue, a lot of times coaches first reaction is, you know, tell somebody to run harder or tell them to go faster or tell them to try more or whatever. That's kind of our first coaching tip, right? It's as someone gets tired, we just yell, hey, go faster, or try harder. You can do it. Fourth quarter, we, you know, we yell at all these motivational things to reinforce effort, but we don't reinforce technique. So we just need to be thinking about as coaches, as we see athletes fatiguing, you know, rather than only cueing them to maintain work and just keep trying, also maintaining their posture, also maintaining their position, also maintaining, you know, focus on their skills. I mean, I think it's a great drill to get guys really tired and then have them focus on their shooting or have them focus on their defense and these sorts of things. Fatigue in those conditions and reinforcing the skills within those you know, situations is going to be a lot more productive to making them a more conditioned basketball player on the court rather than making them just more tired running up and down the court. Boy, that's a great reminder even for me. So thank you so much. Now, where, where can the audience find out more about you and what you have going on? We didn't, we didn't even get to talk about Morpheus, which I'm super excited to get my hands and try out. Uh, yeah, just eightweeksout.com is where all my articles, uh, videos, all these sorts of things. You can join a newsletter. Uh, as you mentioned, we have the Bioforce Conditioning Certification. They can sign up for the Insiders list on eightweeksout.com. Uh, Morpheus, which, again, we didn't talk about, but trainwithmorpheus.com is where that's at. And they can also find more information about Morpheus on Eight Weeks Out. So uh, just check out eightweeksout.com. You can sign up for a newsletter. You can uh, get on the Insiders list for our certification. You can read through lots of different articles, watch a ton of videos, just kind of the whole nine yards. It's all Eight Weeks Out. I love it. And uh, are you doing social media? Yeah, Instagram. So they can find me just uh, Coach Joel Jamison on Instagram uh, or Facebook. We have Facebook eight weeks out as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for all your time. I know uh, I always love listening to you and learning from you. Uh, so I can't wait to see you again. Yeah, appreciate it. And uh, thanks for having me on. I'm sure I'll see you again soon. That's a wrap on episode eight. And you won't want to miss next week where I interview a sleep expert to find out why recovery is so important and get simple tips to optimize our sleep routine. This is a huge focus across the MBA and Division I schools, 
because research now shows that we don't get better in the weight room or classroom. We actually get stronger and smarter when we sleep. Now, I hope you're getting some good, actionable information on the podcast. But remember, if you know it and you don't do it, you don't know it. Just listening to the show doesn't make you any better. You have to live it. So I'm challenging you to pick one action item that would transform your game and start building it into your daily routine. I really believe that the quality of your habits will determine the quality of your life. And once you commit to your one daily habit, go to hoopcommitment.com, download your free commitment calendar, and start building your chain of success today. And for those of you already committed, go earn your X. Go earn your X.